uh, we're we're recording. I mean, I can edit all this stuff out. In Dublin's fair city, where the girls are so pretty. That's where he first met her, sweet Molly Malone. She wheels a wheelbarrow through streets wide and narrow, crying cockles and mussels alive, alive, The harmonies were particularly good. There's a statue of Molly Malone in Dublin, if I remember. There is? Yeah. Molly, yeah. Molly Malone was a, fam- was a famous prostitute. Yeah, it wasn't just cockles and mussels now that she was selling. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you, your audience knows that, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, that's outrageous. We are two members of the European Parliament. And we're very serious. <laughs> very serious. Yeah. Look at you have to laugh. Looking around the world, you have to laugh. Yes. Well, this is, this is exactly what I want to talk to you about today, because... The European, like, is Europe a joke now? Is it kind of just this cartoonish imitation of itself, like driving its car into like a wall, like with energy prices and like commodity prices? Like, is the dream of Europe like coming to like a comical, like tragic comical end? Uh, I'm, I've been trying, I've been kind of telling my friends about this episode and and calling it like a secret Schadenfreude episode, um, because. Like I've watched so many crises happen in my region and I've seen so much like either apathy or even, you know, like enthusiasm from people in Europe over this. So like, I don't know, there is a part of me that has this like anger at Europeans for not doing more to stop their governments. And I can't help but think fair or unfair that like, okay, good. You're getting a taste of your own leaders as medicine. Like what the leaders do to like the rest of the world, what like Europeans and like the leaders of Europe do to the rest of the world is finally making its way back home. Now, mind you, that's a very cynical reading and I might be wrong. And it might be like a, that might be like a harsh way because the people (laughs) suffering are poor people. They're not powerful people who make decisions. So I can, I can hold those two thoughts in my head, but just looking at the stats of things, it makes you like, it makes you crazy that like Europe's leaders drove your, like the economy, like just right off a cliff to chase this insane proxy war by the Americans, led by the Americans. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yes, I mean, we've been making the point that uh, Europe has been engaging uh, in self-destruction to a great degree, and it's pretty irrational. Um, But... I suppose your last point about the fact that it's really the less well-off who are going to be paying the price more so than anyone else. And uh, the politicians themselves uh, are probably going to be okay and the, most of the decision-makers uh, will will uh, survive uh, the hardships coming down the track for so many uh, ordinary Europeans. Um, now, we've been making the point uh, on a regular basis that um, I don't know if you're aware of it, but uh, but Claire and myself put a, an amendment in to the um, Parliament plenary in Strasbourg in October, where we and our amendment uh, said that calls on the the European Union to explore all possibilities of bringing the war to an end and establishing peace through diplomacy and dialogue. So that went to a vote, right? And you know, people might be shocked to hear that 
436 MEPs voted against it. There was 118 voted for it and the rest abstained or weren't there. So it was actually close to around 80% actually voted for war and refused to look for peace. Now, that's kind of scary. Um, and what's even what makes it look even worse is the fact that the European Council for Foreign Relations, which is a, a EU body that does research in Brussels, they carried out a very extensive survey across 10 countries. And one of the main questions was, uh, would you opt for peace or would you opt for continuing to punish Russia? And over 70% voted for peace as against continuing to uh, punish Russia. So you have over 70% of the people of Europe wanting peace and you have over 80% of the politicians wanting war. So obviously, uh, if you do your maths, uh, what that means is that the politicians actually don't really represent uh, uh, the interests of the citizens because the citizens don't want war. Pe people like peace. And unfortunately, we have politicians uh, promoting a war. They can't get enough of it. We've had a resolution uh, every month since the war started in, in Brussels or in, in Strasbourg, uh, on a few in Brussels. And the word peace has hardly been mentioned. There's been no effort made for peace. Diplomacy and dialogue have gone off uh, the radar and we are putting the shoulder to the US-NATO proxy war uh, 100%, despite the fact that this is a disaster for the people of Europe. I mean, I think pe people in Europe are really disorientated, like the... I suppose what they're being presented with in the mainstream media really belies their own experiences. And a lot of people are really shocked at how much the European Union has shot itself, not just in one foot, but in both feet. And people across Europe now are being posed with the choice of heating or eating this winter, in part because of the sanctions uh, imposed on Russia. It has been revealed tensions between the US and EU now because we're paying four times as much in Europe for US gas than is being charged in, a, in the US itself. So we're literally robbing ourselves for some sham fight with Russia, which is not benefiting anybody in Ukraine. And most citizens are scratching their heads going, what the hell is going on here? But the mainstream media and most of the politicians who they look to for guidance are banging the same war drum. We have to defeat the Ruskies, you know. But people, I think, are, are a bit demoralised. And outside the EU, a lot of, because we have the benefit of being in the Parliament of Travelling, we were in Pakistan recently, and the number of people outside of Europe who've said, it's really sad what Europe is doing to itself. It could have been not a, you know, a, an alternative to the US, but at least softening empire's sort of mission but it hasn't done that. It's completely caved and destroyed itself in the process. And people are a little bit lost uh, against what's going on. So I think it is a real pivotal moment, all right, for the EU. Thank you for those. Those those responses are excellent. And I've been, I've been listening to your interventions lately, and you guys are one of the few, like, rational voices that are calling attention to this. But I do have to say that, like, not only are you one of the few, but you also have colleagues who are egging on actual terrorism so your colleague uh the the uh, in canada we say right honorable is that what you say in europe i don't care it doesn't matter i'm being ironic anyways the right dishonorable radislav sikorsky <laughs> 
this guy tweeted, "Thank you, USA," thank you, to, a, to USA. when the news came out of like the Nord Stream pipeline. Like, if that's not like a perfect metaphor for like not just like shooting yourself in the foot, like foot, hand, earlobe, like every part of your body. Like this seems to be the current like choice of European leaders now. Mind you, I want to sort of ask a bigger question, and maybe it's too soon uh, for this question. But is this not the blossoming of the results of the first of all like American victory in Europe um, in 1945, and like the final defeat of what could be called European sovereignty? Um, that's kind of my thinking in a sense. Is that like like I don't think like yes, Europe's leaders are leading them into this disastrous war. But I don't think they're doing it. I think it's because that ultimately they serve an American hegemonic project, and that hegemonic project needs to sacrifice economies every now and then, and it behaves like a gangster too. So it says, "Oh, you're gonna enjoy having a steel industry? Not anymore. You're gonna be buying from us now. Like, oh, because your energy is gonna be too expensive." So I wonder if like a funny reality or a very dark reality is coming to the fore of life for especially boomers, like like boomers of your like you know of your generation who were born of the uh, born of like the american victory in europe like is this now you're getting the dark side of the deal now mind you it hasn't been lovely in europe post war but are you starting to see the costs of making this faustian pact like as a as a subcontinent like that's i mean that's a broad reading mind you and it's you know it looks over a lot of different settings and of course there's the cold war in between all of that but Generally speaking, America dominates Europe. Well, <clears throat> I suppose uh, American dominance of Europe uh, since the Second World War um, is not a new thing for us. I mean, it, it's it's been around for a while. Um, the Marshall Plan was a was a, a brainwave on the part of the Americans because it kind of made us uh, a bit subservient to them anyway, uh, but. If you look at the whole NATO project, for example, and people don't really, people kind of see NATO as uh, as almost a sort of a partnership between the Europeans and the US uh, uh, at war. But I mean, NATO was formed um, by the Americans for America. I mean, the idea was to make sure that the European states uh, were on page that were on board with support for the US imperialism uh, across the globe and that they wouldn't be challenging that. And that's really what NATO was about. So uh, NATO, uh, from the very start, and I think it was formed in 49, was it? Uh, but it, it was it, that made us subservient uh, to US in many ways on foreign policy anyway. So we've been kind of subservient to them for a long time. Uh, then, having said that, uh, we've had various leaders in Europe that were prepared uh, to challenge that American dominance. And people might forget now, right, but um, it's not long since Merkel disappeared. And I wonder if Merkel had still been Chancellor of Germany uh, last winter and last spring before the war opened would the war have started or could Merkel have prevented it? She was kind of the last of the of, of the, the last strong leader of, of the serious member states uh, in Europe. And uh, 
sadly, uh, what has replaced her in Germany. And is they very bugged weak. her phone for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mer- Merkel had a good relationship with the Americans to a certain degree, but Mer- Merkel didn't do anything that wasn't in Germany's interest. Mm. Germany came first, and she was prepared. She was very happy to have a good relationship with America, provided it didn't conflict with the interest of Germany. And that's why she was so adamant about uh, Nord Stream 2 as well. And she wasn't for turning on it. And uh, speaking of Nord Stream 2, uh, I mean, and talking about European subservience to America today, look, I mean, when the Nord Stream 2 was bombed, uh, when it was blown up, um, there was an awful lot of uh, talk in the parliament here for about 24 hours, more or less blaming the Russians for blowing up their own pipe. Now, obviously, we don't know for certain who did it, but we have a fair good idea that the Russians probably didn't blow up their own pipe. And we were pretty uh, taken aback by the fact that the story went off the front pages uh, of European mainstream newspapers so fast, i never seen anything like it. And the sub the, the subject was dropped like a hot potato in the parliament so quickly it was also scary so if there was if if they had any inkling that the russians might have done it yeah. i think we'd still be listening to it and p- people should remember that the 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 explosion that damaged nord stream 1 and 2 resulted in the largest emission of methane gas in the history of the planet in one go and this was uh, environmental terrorism of a level that we'd never seen. Mm. Environmental terrorism. And we're not wanting to find out who did it? What in God's name has gone wrong? Mm. The secret kind of, that, <laughs> that reveals it all right. I mean, yeah, look, at there are so many issues on that. I mean, before the war, there was a certain Germany, France, the likes of that, put European interests first but what we've seen since the war is the sort of um poland and the balkans that their viewpoint which is very anti-russian has become the main narrative because i don't think that that europe has sort of shot itself in both feet because it wants to serve u.s empire or anything like that traditionally countries in europe are very friendly to the u.s they're very favorable towards us ye are our like-minded partners as they say they kind of like that but there's a difference between that which has now been sort of hijacked in a sort of a totally anti-russian way led by um the outliers in the union so the lunatics have actually taken over the asylum now and those running the show are the sort of extremists in the baltic states and in poland whose agenda is mainly anti-russian rather than pro-european whereas or pro-us whereas the likes of merkel and that put europeans interests first and now we're seeing european interests just being subservient to another geopolitical battle really uh, and speaking of the lack of leadership at the moment right i mean it was a very unfortunate time uh, to have von der Leyen as the president of the commission and to have Joseph Borrell as the high representative for foreign affairs uh, in the European Union. Uh, Borrell thinks this war has to be won on the battlefield. Well, that's pretty sad now because there isn't really going to be any winner in this war and uh, uh, Nobody's going to win this war on the battlefield. I mean, it's very hard to win wars these days. Uh, I think it's about 50 years at least since the Americans won one and they have a bigger army probably than the rest of the planet put together. 
uh, and they find it hard to win a war. And everybody will find it hard. Both sides will find it very hard to win this one in Ukraine. And we have our high representative of foreign affairs, Joseph Burrell, telling us this war has to be won on the battlefield. What, what he's saying is that diplomacy and dialogue are not to be entertained. We have to destroy Russia. Mm, and that working now, class Russians and Ukrainians have to keep dying so that we can feed the arms industry is basically what they're saying uh, as well. Just a couple of days ago, uh, von der Leyen said that over 100,000 Ukrainian troops had been killed in the war. Now, she had to take it down because this was bad news. Uh, so, And her uh, her speech was edited and that part was taken out. Um, but the idea that, uh, which was expressed at an earlier stage by some... Uh, some members of the of either Congress or, or, the, or the Senate in, in America, which said that they were prepared to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. And people should remember that it's only poor people that are dying in this war. Rich people don't die in war. They don't go to the battlefield. And we have poor Ukrainians and poor Russians dying uh, in terrible numbers. And we have politicians across Europe who are not prepared to go and fight in the war themselves or send their sons because they know the war is stupid. But they're prepared to promote the war as more and more poor Ukrainians in, in particular die and poor Russians are dying. Uh, all, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's another imperial war. It's just absolute nonsense. But I think it's important to say, I mean, We've been totally demonised at home in Ireland now. We are an embarrassment and a disgrace, allegedly. Um, even though every day we're contacted by people in all across Europe and way beyond saying, my God, we're really glad you're talking out because you're saying what we feel. And I think that's just absolutely desperate. And it sort of vindicates this idea that there is a huge disconnect now between the citizens of Europe and the establishment who are on the hiding to nothing. People in Europe want peace, they want an end to the war, but there's nobody given uh, a voice to that, which is really shameful. I mean, is this a war on Europe itself? Like, because in a lot of ways, like the, the even if like the two, say, belligerents, like the main belligerents, like the actors in this, like our these, you know, Russia and Ukraine, two countries that are not, you know, in NATO, uh, obviously, and like NATO membership is part of it. And so it kind of it looks it looks in some ways, I mean, the way it was framed originally, the actually in terms of the invasion was this is and I guess this is also since 2014, which is, you know, Ukraine would like to join Europe, capital E Europe. Right. And, you know, Russia wasn't like and, and in all in all of that meaning. And the fact that like Russia, this big bad country, isn't going to allow that uh, because that would mean that this military force called NATO would be legally would be at its border, uh, and so it wasn't going to allow for that. And blah blah blah. We all know that whole story. However, it as this as this goes on and the consequences of all of this become clear to me, like to different industries, that it's 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 actually just as much or even more so a war on the European economy and sovereignty than anything than anything to do with Russia because i the us is a mafia mafioso empire it it runs it doesn't have allies it has vassals and proxies and to my mind and i think this went to back to my first question that i i posed to you guys is that to my mind that the us needed europe in a certain way for the last you know 75 years and 
you know, Europe was duly there at every turn for every imperialist war. It was there, Europeans there, working class Europeans, middle class Europeans, sure. Like they all joined those imperialist wars. You know, it's different countries at different times, but they knew how their egg, how their bread gets buttered, right? That it's better for French working class people to support in some ways. And I'm saying this like cynically, but I feel that this is true that it's better for working class French people to support their president as he bombs Libya because the wealth that's going to trickle into their country, is, that's exactly been the story of the rise of these European countries, these European imperial countries. Now, I know I'm, I'm making vast generalizations here because not all the countries of modern Europe were imperial powers in the same way. However, I will have to say that the sovereignty of Europe wasn't real sovereignty because in a lot of different instances, it didn't its its allegiance to the US and its like master you know wasn't tested until very recently and the rise of these independent countries that have been challenging the US that like you know daddy's rule so to speak so i i did want to push back and kind of ask you like you know if you you know sovereignty is a many different things and you're putting european interests first is a kind of sovereignty so in some ways i see this as punishment for Merkel's, you know, daring resistance. Like I can see that as punishment, like the way that to send a signal to say, oh, you want to have a president or like a leader who resists our agenda 100% like at all in any, in any aspect, then you're going to get a proxy war on your hands and we're going to trigger an energy crisis and we're going to squeeze on the very sort of energy source that you've been relying on. I mean, yeah, like it's a cynical view, but I don't know. I don't, I don't have much faith in European sovereignty. I'll, I'll let you know that. Let me put it that way. Well, um, first of all, it, it needn't have been this way. And Europe could have remained a close ally or partner, whatever you want to call them, of the US without becoming so subservient. And what we've seen, we got elected to the European Parliament in May 2019, which is over three and a half years now. And what we've seen in that time uh and it's gradually been ratcheting up, uh, was a deliberate attempt by the US to drive a wedge between the EU and Russia and to drive a wedge between the EU and China. Now, you might say, well, what was in this for the Americans? Well, I do think that the US empire is in a spot of butter. Uh, I don't think they can run amok across the planet with the same ease as they've done in the past. Uh, they've had some very bad experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, what's going on in Yemen today is obviously a disaster. Uh, what's going on in, in so many parts of Africa is not really turning out great for them. And of course, the, the big elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned yet is China. And China has become a big issue for America because more than likely in our lifetimes, uh, China will become the number one economy in the world, surpassing America. The supremacy of the dollar may not last. More than likely, I don't see the dollar collapsing. I don't see the dollar being a weak currency in 20 years' time. But I think it'll just find itself, uh, it'll be one of a, a few different currencies. Whereas since Bretton Woods in 44, 
the dollar has reigned supreme, and that has given unbelievable power to the Americans. For example, uh, their use of sanctions today couldn't be done without the supremacy of the dollar. And the likes of the Chinese in particular are challenging that. And that's a big problem for the Americans. Europe shouldn't be falling out with Russia or with China, but that's what's been happening. And it's not in our interest, it's in Americans' interest. And just the same as, as Claire pointed out, Europeans today are paying four times more for US LNG than the Americans are paying for it. Now, let's put aside, put aside for a minute what the citizens pay because there's all kinds of subsidising going on at the moment. But if you look at uh, uh, industry in France or Germany or Italy today and look at industry, a similar industry in America and you have the Americans paying 25% of the price the Europeans are paying, a quarter of what the Europeans are paying for energy. Now, how in God's name are the European companies supposed to compete with an American company if the Europeans are paying four times more than the Americans for energy? So you can see that this war has done, it's been pretty attractive for the Americans. But as you say, it's been a disaster for us. And you'd wonder how in God's name we've allowed this to happen. And why are we now also threatening to fall out with China, who are our largest trading partner. We have no good reason to fall out with China. We have several good reasons to stay friendly with them. And yet, the anti-China rhetoric is getting stronger and stronger in the European Parliament, the same as the anti-Russian one was building ever since uh, 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. Uh, so. We have the Europeans failing to protect their own best interest at the behest of the Americans. And we have the European people paying the price for it. It's very hard to make sense of that. and But the story hasn't been put to the people in the way that it should be. And the people are not being informed by mainstream media about what's really happening at the moment. And that's part of our challenge, is to inform the public. Because the public should not be putting up with this, and we should be on the streets. And we well, need, if we cannot change the way our politicians behave, then we should change our politicians. And in fairness, people are more and more on the streets of Europe. There's been huge protest movements in Italy against NATO, against the cost of living uh, crisis in France, in the Czech Republic and so on. And I don't really see this as being a war on Europe as such. I think it's much more like kind of the old slogan, which was misattributed to Kissinger, that the US doesn't have any permanent friends or enemies, only interests. And this is why they're engaged in this war. They're under pressure from China. This war is like a godsend because it's been a bonanza for the arms industry. There's no end to the money that's been spent on that. And as Mick says, then the energy crisis, the dollar and the euro are almost at par. There's even companies relocating their industry from Europe 
to the US to follow the cheaper energy now. I mean, it's a disaster for European industry. The bigger question is how the hell has Europe allowed itself to be conned in this way? And I think we'd make a mistake by thinking that Europe is one big block. I mean, European Union started as a project supposedly for, you know, economic progress, that there'd be peace on Europe. Never again would we have a world war, blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And then it morphed into being a pretty big military project and sort of geopolitical project as well. But there are 27 countries in it and they do have different interests. And we find the Eastern European countries, or at least some of them, who were encouraged in in a big block um, later on in the project to bolster NATO and to provide a pool of cheap labour for Western Europe, they are the most zealous anti-Russians in the family, if you like. And they're much more extreme than, say, France or Germany and that, who are maybe talking a little bit more for, well, not necessarily peace, but they're a bit more moderate in their way forward. So I think what's been revealed is yeah, a crisis of European integration, as it were. I mean, let's face it, Russia is part of Europe, but the arms industry needs a bad guy, and it's Russia at the moment. And as Mick says, when that's finished, it's going to be China destabilizing it there so that the boys get the money in the bank. But ordinary people across, actually the US as well as uh, Europe, are the ones paying the price for that. Well, that's I, I agree with everything you're you're saying. I mean, I think the central point that I was trying to make in terms of, is this a war on European sovereignty? I, I, I still think it is in the sense that um, I think the, the core, if, if, there, if there was a kind of post-war European story, like the idea of Europe itself is a fiction, right? It's a legal and cultural and economic fiction. It doesn't exist. It never has existed. It's not even a continent. You know, like th there's no geographic entity called Europe. It's it's first and foremost, let's say, an imagined community. Now, that's a supranational imagined community. But however, like this is also one that was organized with a, a flow of capital going in one direction, right? Flow of people and goods and natural resources going west, and then you have a f and 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 the profits and the profits staying west. Right. And so, like, in some ways, I, I feel that the, I mean, to, to my understanding, at least, the expansion of NATO eastward was exactly in terms of to bolster a certain class of people who were raised in the Cold War, who had anti communism, like, you know, deeply instilled into their blood. And they make natural allies of the US the way that Salafi extremists make natural allies to the US and other parts of the world that you guys know about, obviously. Right. That you make an enemy. You make an the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and the U.S. uses that to build its global alliance. However, like this 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 war now, and I think one of the reasons why to answer your question, Claire, is like why did Europeans allow that, or maybe it was Mick, or both of you have said it. It's that like why have we allowed this? Is that yeah? Because in a, for a long time it's benefited Europeans because the war stayed on the periphery, and they benefited from the spill in of human beings and all that talent and the capital and like, yeah, sure. The rich are the ones who get mostly rich, but the economies that working class people in Europe work in, they're built on that expert, built on these periodic, you know, like insanely violent wars. So it is in their economic interest now to, as in terms of, in terms of keeping the, keeping up the status quo, mind you. Okay. It's not long-term and making their lives better. 
But in terms of keeping up the status quo, I think it's in the interest of, say, a working class Portuguese person to support, you know, the NATO destruction of Libya. Now, can there be ethical human beings who live in Europe who who don't care about their national interest in an abstract sense, who say, oh, I don't support war? Of course, yes. And I'm sure that they represent a good chunk of these countries. However, the fact that now America has decided, and Mick, you put it, that they're in a spot of bother, and now the way that mafiosos run is that, oh, when the profits are tight, you squeeze more from your reliable, reliable patron, like, you know, like you reliable, uh, let's say patrons, uh, you reliable sources of income, you squeeze more exploitation out of them. And the fact that you, America basically forced Europe to give up its reliance on cheap, abundant Russian energy and said, it's more important for you to buy our more expensive oil and more expensive energy than get it from our enemy for much less. It's more important for us than you having an auto industry, Germany. It's more important than than the U than France having you know an airline industry. Like that's this is where the interests don't coincide. And now it's made clear that you guys are second class citizens of this of your own project, European project, because the first class citizens are the Yanks, right? Are the people sitting in London and the UK, and they're the ones who benefit from this more than anyone else. I mean that's. That's my, that's my kind of global reading. I don't know if it's fair. And again, working class people don't like they, they. I'm not saying in terms of in their own heads. I'm talking about their own economic interests. But that's that's kind of my way of thinking through this of like why it's been allowed to happen. I don't know. That's kind of seems like, and I'm sure you're not like that. You're kind of blaming the citizens of Europe uh, for that. I mean, for example, like can. Um, Germany have an auto industry or France an aviation industry? Actually, those questions need to be asked in terms of the future of the planet. Can they afford to have that? Not just because the US wants to compete with that, but actually can the planet afford that way forward? Look, I mean, I actually think there is a European identity. I know you said there isn't, but actually people do affiliate to that idea. I mean, for us looking at the history, it's a mishmash of countries who were former colonialists. Let's remember, we thought the US, all of that good stuff we imported. Our colonialists over there got rid of all the Native Americans and all that good stuff. So Europe's where it started. So you have that end of the former colonial powers and then you have the Eastern European countries, post-Soviet countries, a lot of whom in terms of their leaderships come with a lot of baggage, like a lot of the people who got elected after the Soviet Union fell apart, ended up taking over and profiting from the dismantlement of the state industry there. And if you like, they became the oligarchs and the, the corrupt rulers in those countries. And again, lauded it over their citizens. And for us, one of the biggest tragedies in this is that in the middle of all of that, you have Little Ireland, who's very much affiliated to Western Europe, but actually a formal, formerly colonized country ourselves. And we have, I suppose, the best or worst of both worlds where we've an affinity with being uh, controlled by a bigger neighbor, but also are kind of very Western. And we could have played a great role in terms of tapping into what is genuinely the mood of most European citizens don't want invasions of Libya or they don't see that being as benefiting their economic interests or anything like that. Most people and all the surveys would support it, want peace, but they're kind of disorientated from the establishment now. They don't understand and they're being bullied. Like we've the 
Taoiseach in Ireland getting up and saying, well, we don't mind in Ireland now being cold during the winter because that'll play a part now in helping the people of Ukraine. No, it won't. But that's just total emotional blackmail to bury people into support and basically to the arms industry. So what we have is big business interests dominate and be they, you know, obviously at the moment, a little bit, you know, European biz, big, big business is being undermined, which is something we find hard to understand at the behest of, of the US. But it's the citizens that are paying the price on this. And people in Europe are just, to me, they're totally disorientated and sort of disconnected now between the societies. I don't know, probably not explain that great, but yeah. Yeah, um, obviously, for so much of big business in Europe <clears throat> to take this on the chin and allow it to continue and to allow the politicians to behave like they're behaving is a bit of uh, an eye-opener for us. Um, generally speaking, as we've observed politics in Europe for years, uh, big business generally called the shots. And decisions were made that suited them first and the citizens second. <clears throat> it's, it's at the core of neoliberalism. <clears throat> that hasn't gone away. But <clears throat> in, in this situation, we're watching European industry um, go down the tubes in some form because they are refusing to stand up to the mainstream media, and to the politicians uh, in a way that we hadn't really witnessed before. Um, I would agree with Claire as well in the sense that you're, you're saying that we, we don't have an identity as a continent. Um, we kind of we thought we had some sort of an identity. Um, we, we, there, is, there is such a thing as kind of for us, there is, there is a, a notion called being European. Mm. Right now, we're not saying that. Uh, what? what uh, just how? What did it really mean? Um, but we, we did have there, there. There was a certain um, sense of well, we did have some common interests. Uh, we were never convinced that things were done fairly. I mean, things were not done fairly in any of the member states. Uh, inequality is rising all across Europe. Uh, the, the vested interests have too much influence in decision-making uh, all across the member states. And the European Union itself, uh, as we've pointed out many times, has developed into a, a right-wing neoliberal club, especially since the Nice and Lisbon treaties. We've literally enshrined neoliberalism now in our constitution. And that's a huge problem. Uh, but to watch... To watch industry take a back seat and allow industry to be damaged by politicians who hardly know what they're doing uh, is it's is really scary yeah uh, I haven't seen it before but it is beginning to change well it, it tells you that like it tells you that like the 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 like they, in some ways that like the u.s works to like the u.s has this like imperial mindset and it runs this kind of regime change machine and i can't help but sense that the u.s secretly regime changed europe over the course of like over and over again and it 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 created and it gave birth to these like pliant quizzling leaders not unlike 
the people who rule over my region, who are proxies or quislings, or people who put the third or put the interests, their own personal interests and the interests of like global multinationals ahead of their own people. That's something I'm very familiar to. However, as you just pointed out, their own it breaks the very class laws of their own society, right? That like the rich are supposed to be the ones who get to call the shots, but the rich in Germany are clearly sh are, are, are unable to stop what's happening to their huge economy, right? Like they can, they don't have the power, right? And so in some ways, like this, what's been exposed is like the fundamental contradictions of European modernity, I would say, which is American American dollars, like pay for reconstruction and where and then it's it's the energy that's provided by you know your like russia right and like that contradiction and like china came in to provide these new imports for like you know whatever consumer durables or anything else actually and so like those america was not willing to accept that let's say three-part force and it's and it's how it's going to rule over its subcontinent so right now that's what i'm seeing happening is that the u.s like manage to get its way so that European leaders can take these insanely self-destructive policies that are not in the interest of their own populations and just drive off a cliff, you know, like scot-free and do it in the, in, the mo in the name of saving Ukrainian lives. I mean, that's the most perverse thing is that you sit and like some 90-year-old pensioner in France will die this year, right, this winter because because some fictional duty to some non-existent Ukrainian in his life. I mean, it makes no sense. It's it, that's not sovereignty. That's like vassalhood. Okay, right. But um, I suppose the big question is where where are we going, and what's going to happen now? Hmm. And um, the people of countries, the big the big three, uh, the, the the most three most powerful countries in Europe are Germany, France, and Italy, for example, right, and I don't, I don't accept that the people in these three countries are going to take all this lying down. Their living standards are going to be eroded. They're going to struggle to pay their monthly bills. They're going to struggle to look after their kids. There's going to be huge pressure on them to do what they want to do, to be able to afford it because their living standards are being eroded at the moment by stupid decisions by the politicians. Uh, the French and the Italians in particular are very good at protesting and will they protest as things get worse? I'm fairly convinced they will and I also think the Germans will. Not a country renowned for protesting, right? But the Germans have been long used to a good standard of living uh, not wouldn't have as much money in their pocket probably as the French, but very well organized society in the sense that very good health system, uh, good public services, uh, but that that's all going to be eroded a bit now. And I'm not so sure they're going to like it very much. And people have one big thing in their favor and that's numbers, right? And they're going to have to use them because we're going to have to stand up to these useless, stupid politicians who are making decisions that are not in our interests. And that's where the where we have to go. We, the idea that we're just going to keep going down the swanee mm. and that things are just going to keep getting worse and we're going to suck it up, 
I don't accept that. I don't see the European people con just sucking it up. This is stupidity of the highest order, and I do think that you're going to see a huge increase in protests in Europe. Yeah. And and not just in those three countries, but they're the three big buys. Hmm. I actually see a lot more similarity between the US and Europe than, I mean, the narrative as you have outlined it sort of gives this as a sort of a master stroke to US strategists. And I genuinely don't see it like that. I mean, I think the US society is as polarized, divided and unequal, probably worse even than Europe is. What they've probably done is they're strategic think tanks and, and financing of the media across Europe has had them all on message in spreading their narrative. But the key thing, and Mick has said it, is that has not won the hearts and minds of people. The problem has been, it's not that the people buy into the narrative and that they're on the sides of the establishment. They're obviously on the side of the Ukrainian people, but that doesn't mean they're anti-Russian. Nobody wants to see anybody being the victim in, the war, in a war, but they're confused and they don't see a way forward because I think the the left and the alternative in Europe has been weakened. So sadly, what you're actually going to see is the centre is shrinking and the far right and extremism is going to become more and more dominant because people are losing faith, if you like, in that centre. And that's caused the EU tremors now, because as we sit here in Brussels today, there's a meeting of the Conference on the Future of Europe to precisely try and grapple with the crisis for Europe. But rather than going out into some of the working class areas or the poor rural areas across Europe, they've just a bunch of Europhiles who are already in the bubble telling themselves the same nonsense that the problem for Europe is Russian disinformation or some of this nonsense. So, look, it's, it's a, a big problem for Europe. It's definitely in flux and the war has highlighted that. But ultimately, this will be resolved by the people themselves entering the stage of history as they've had to before and the space for them to do that um, is and their economic circumstances mean they have to do it actually and you know, all sooner rather than later necessity is the mother of invention absolutely mm -hmm.